טוב, גוד מורנינג. אלף ברוכים הבאים, זה תמיד גוד להיות כאן ולראות כמה פמיליה פייסס וכמה נו פייסס. שלום, שלום. טוב, אנחנו נתחיל בגיאת רות, שהיא באמת מאוד טקסט. הלנגוויץ' לא כל כך קשה, הנרטיב מתחילת. And uh, I don't claim to make any great chidushim, but just to, uh, to highlight some of the basics of the, of the narrative and where the, where the turning points uh, around which uh, the story uh, moves forward. Um, however, we'll not begin with Migat Ruth. I allow myself uh, to read a few lines in Grani Vamot and to uh, discuss them or to give some drush about them for a few minutes, and then we'll move on to Ruth because, in a sense... The Gemara's message, even though it's not its application, is extremely relevant um, for the Megillah. The Gemara tells us, Masechet Yivamot of Samachvet, I'll be able to translate, the verse is false, Pesuk in Kohelet, Baboker zerad zarecha, v'lev al-tamach yadecha. In other words, go, go forward and plant in the morning, and continue to do so afternoon, late evening. Why? says Kohelet, you have no idea which will be successful, which one will succeed, which one will fail, or maybe both will succeed. Then anyway, a person should not say to himself, in the dawn of my life, I've accomplished a few accomplishments, I've set the foundations for the future, and therefore go and go and rest and... Uh, Rather, the person should constantly renew himself and continue to move forward, A, because it's important to move forward, B, because the results of the second effort may be different, and C, and this is what the Gemara is emphasizing over here, that the first effort, no matter how promising and how optimistic it looks originally, may become a failure, may be a tragedy, and therefore the idea is to move forward. Now the Gemara gives a few examples. Um, Rabbi Yeshua Omer, Nasa Adam Isha Bialduto, Yisa Isha Beziknuto. Who believe Bialduto, you believe Beziknuto. And then he quotes the Pasuk that I read. Rabbi Kiva Omer, Lamatra Bialduto, you matra Beziknuto. Lu Tamidim Bialduto, you do Tamidim Beziknuto. And they quote the same Pasuk. And then the Gemara tells the famous story about Rabbi Kiva's Tamidim. So Rabbi Yeshua says as follows. If a person is married, in his youth, he should nevertheless, and then he loses tragically his wife, he should nevertheless remarry again. Um, same is true about children. If a person has children at the young age, he should nevertheless have children at a later age as well. And the same is true about your learning. And if a person learns in youth, he should learn in old age. And if a person has Talmidim, he should do the same thing. That's the story of Akiva's Talmidim. Now, the common denominator for all of these things, in the Gemara's opinion, is not only is it better to have a second effort, and the second effort will give a different perspective, and which is certainly true. Is that a per- our parenthood or marriage when you're 20 is different than when you're 40 and the life experience of marriage of the first marriage at the age of 20, 25 is very different than remarrying at a later age with different life experience. So this value per se, there's a, the Gemara says as follows in some place else, the Gemara tells us that Rav Chizda had two children, Markshisha Umar Zutra. Kshisha means the older one, Zutra means the younger one. He had two children, one of whom is uh, called the young one, the other is called the older one. Tosfot explained that the older one means the younger child. He was born to the parents' older age. And the younger one means is actually the one who's older because he was born to the parents' uh, younger age. Rabban Soloveitchik, who was born 15 years after his older brother, the Rav, Rabban Soloveitchik once explained why is this so. Because a parenthood, when we're young, is a different kind of parenthood. The formative experiences, the way we mold our children, the way we interact with them, is very different when we are young and the first child, 
or when we are old, and it's, um, in other words, we are much older, the child is, uh, number seven or number eight or, or whatever in the, in the series, it's a different experience. It's not better, it's not worse. It's different. The formative experiences are different. Now, all this is true, but what the Gemara is trying to emphasize is something additional. And this is why the story of Akiva is so pivotal to this uh, presentation. A person can have a dream. The dream could be a building institution. It could be Talmidim, disseminating his message to the world. It could be a family. It could be marriage. It could be children. And everything crashes down. Rabbi Kiva had himself a huge life, uh, <coughs> huge life accomplishment. He had 24,000 Talmidim. He, everyone's following him. He had a mass following. His message was getting across to everybody. Everyone listened to, for his message. And then everything crashes. His whole life's uh, work goes up in the rebellion and the, and, and the, and the Roman uh, defeat. And Rekiva's left with basically nothing. Everything is, all his toil, all his work, all his effort, all the frustration, all the sleepless nights have basically all vanished into nothing. Now the question is, what does Rekiva do with himself? Does he sink into despair? He said himself, the 20-something years I put into building this institution, the years it took me to amass all the relationships and to develop a following, I can never repeat this. There's no way to go back and renew. And therefore, so sick into the spirit to set himself, he'd be like a Noach figure. And of course, this is exactly what happened to Noach. Noach led the world, he saved the world, but then he saw that he, or he felt he can't have a second attempt. He didn't, he lacked the energy. He was devastated by a world which is, which has been destroyed and vanished. So he basically takes to the bottle and he drinks, uh, and he lies there helpless, uh, fast asleep, uh, unwilling to build a new world. Um, Rebekiva could have the same tragedy could have happened to him. However, Chazal tell us, what did Rebekiva do? Um, Kulan made to all of his Talmidim, his whole, all of his Hasidim, I should say, really, made to Beperik Echad, they all died in one, uh, no, it's, it wasn't uh, a gradual, it was a tragedy, a calamity, which happened in one fell shot. Kulan made to Beperik Echad, um, <coughs> the world was desolate spiritually, to the sense of despair, Sense of there's no point. The Romans and the Christians uh, will basically sweep everything in front of them. We have no hope. Everything is despair. Ad He went down to the south, which is the periphery, which is basically far away from the centers of power and economic uh, activity. He took five Talmidim, and uh, he uh, basically reestablished Torah. And the entire Torah Peh that we are familiar with nowadays is because of Akiva's second attempt. When he sat there with five, six chosen select Talmidim, and from them he basically, he revived Torah, and the Torah to this very day continues uh, to accompany us. It's what we learn every day. The same Midrashim, the same Gemaras, the same Mishnayot are what accompany us from then to this very day. This is all because Rabbi Akiva refused to follow into, to, to fall, excuse me, into despair. He refused to give up, even though he should have. Think for a moment, Lahabdu the Holocaust. Rabbi Akiva experienced on the scale then something similar. Basically, the whole country was wiped out. The, the, the descriptions in Chazal, the eyewitness descriptions of the Roman uh, tyranny and devastation Basically, the whole area, Chazal described a, blood, a river of blood from Beitar, which is right below us, all the way to the sea. <clears throat> Whether it's metaphorical or literal, doesn't matter. The point is, is that Chazal describing a world which has been totally conquered, totally destroyed, total destruction and devastation. And uh, for Bekiva, the logical thing, would, uh, let's not forget, Bekiva Sabar Kochva, as if not Mashiach, a second best, he, Rebekiva thought the Beit HaMikdash would be revived, would be rebuilt. 
The first one was built after 70 years, after it was destroyed. He expected the second one to be built after 70 years, which is more or less the time frame. So therefore, and all of this comes crashing down, Be'kiva nevertheless decides to rebuild. And the same is true on the other examples, I'll just mention them briefly because we want to get to God's root eventually. Um, Be'kiva, excuse me, the same is true, the Gemara discusses on the personal level. person is happily married, he has all these wonderful dreams, he plans ahead to the future, he sees himself as a great-grandparent on a rocking chair enjoying his Eneklach, and then all of a sudden tragedy strikes. Be a tragedy of death, and he becomes a widow, she becomes a, he, she becomes a widow, he becomes a widower, Chaz Shalom divorce, uh, tragedy enters into uh, the plans, all of a sudden, the person feels, I failed, my life has been a failure, I've, um, fate has struck me down, all my dreams have been, sm- have been shattered. See, Chazal, Hayulo Banim Ruto, he had children, he had a marriage, he had a family, he should rebuild. He should not sink into despair, and despite the difficulty, he should go ahead and nevertheless rebuild and make a second effort despite the difficulty. Because you never know what will be your destiny, what will be the future, what will be your future, and what will eventually be your, your legacy. And therefore, Babok Yisrael Zarecha, plant in the morning, Erev and the evening, in the evening of life, Al Tanach Don't stop, continue. Okay, and this in a sense is the essence of the drama of the Gilat Rut. What happens? What has the Megillah begin? It begins with the same, uh, the same kind of setup. The time of the judges, we'll get back to that later if we have time. This famine, there's a sense of, uh, what can we do? Everything is, uh, we all die of, uh, of starvation. Um, so you have here Shvota Shoftim, the time, the period of the judges. I, I should really, I, I, let me just emphasize one thing. The translation judges, in my opinion, is, is incorrect. Uh, Shvota Shoftim means the leadership. But Shofet and Tanakh always means one or two things. It's either a judge or a leader. The Shoftim, a separate Shoftim, are not judges in the judicial, in the judicial sense. Rather, they're, they're, they are leaders. Lishpot means lahanhig, means to lead. And I think it's a mistake in translation to call them, it's not the book of judges, it's the book of leader. Or leaders or leadership. Uh, and, uh, means when the period, when the leadership was not a monarchy, it was not, it was rather this assorted collection of the leaders that were familiar from Sefer Shoftim. And, of course, we could say it's a time of, uh, decentralized, weak political leadership, to characterize it mildly. So now you have a famine. There's no central leadership. There's no sense of someone like Yosef in Egypt who can nevertheless lead and provide sustenance in a difficult period. Everything is decentralized. Everything is local. There's no, the resources don't exist. Neither the physical resources in terms of grain and... Uh, and cattle and whatnot, but more so, there's no resources of leadership. El Elimelech and his household, they simply give up. There are in Chazal different opinions why they were punished so so harshly. One of them is because they left Eretz Israel. But there's another opinion, it was a lack of leadership. That Elimelech was supposed to lead, he was the local leader, he was the sheriff, so to speak, of Beit Lechem, and rather than leaving, he fled. And I said, why did he flee? Why did he leave? The answer is despair. Elimelech simply saw, he looked around, he didn't see any hope. There's no hope, there's no, and we'll see, we'll see this later on when Naomi really says these things most explicitly, there is no hope. And there's no hope. So rather than following the Gemara's dictum that that if it doesn't succeed the first time, try the second time. In other words, there's always hope. Even the throes of despair, 
should always be hope, and a person should always dig into his neshama to look for renewed uh, and deeper uh, energies. Elimelech simply gets up and he runs away because he's despaired of any solution. I said the despair is both physically in terms of the ability to uh, find food uh, in difficult times, and also the ability to lead and to harness what what should a person do in time of famine. The idea is to bring everyone together to provide a collective uh, solution, uh, to bring all uh, all hands on board and find some way to uh, to cope. But he simply he deserves, and it's not simply the lack of leadership. The lack of leadership is rooted in a lack of hope. And um, now, uh, for a moment, let's continue. Uh, he goes with his whole family, etc. Okay, now, um, for a moment, let's want to know me and see this once she mentions this explicitly. Uh, they'll get back to the tragedy that happened to them. Um, when Naomi is about to uh, leave uh, Ruth, or when she tries to convince Ruth to leave her and not to follow her. So what does she say? It's Perak Aleph Pasuk Yudalef. V'tomer Naomi, shov navinotai. Return my daughters. Lama telach nami, why follow me? Ha'oli v'anim b'me'avilichem la'anashim. Do I have any chance of giving birth again? Um don't follow me. I am hopeless. Because, first of all, I cannot give birth anymore. And if I can, whoever will be born is not, uh, you lack the time and the, the time span, the plan to marry them. But the basic word here is the best word, ki amarti yeshli tikva. Had I only been able to say that I have hope, but I don't. I lack any hope. And, uh, now there, there are other solutions to their problem, as indeed the Miguel will tell us later on. The basic problem, the real, the issue here is not so much Naomi's age, that she cannot bear children. There are other people in Beit Lechem, such as Boaz, who is Mishpacha with them, such as other people. Naomi could have found solutions, but the real problem is not so much do you have a plan. The problem is do you have hope? Do you have energy? Or are you broken? Are you a broken soul? And that's where it, uh, that's what it's all focused on. Ki amarti yeshli tikva. Had I only been able to say that I have hope, but I cannot say that. And uh, what's more, think for a moment that the last generation, there were thousands upon thousands of survivors who were just a shadows Naomi, probably more. But nevertheless, they rebuilt. Did they have a plan necessarily when they left Europe to scatter to Israel, America, Australia, Argentina, whatever? Did they have a plan? Not necessarily, but they had a sense that we have to somehow rebuild. We have to rebuild our lives. And the others who really became Noach figures, who, and of course, one cannot criticize, but just to describe to others who indeed can never rebuild. And this is Naomi. Naomi is a figure who cannot rebuild after the tragedy. And now for a moment, let's uh, skip a few psukim. The, I'm towards the end of Perak Aleph. Um, don't call me Naomi. Naomi, of course, means pleasant, right? Noam. So Naomi means, you know, I have a pleasant life. Uh, call me Mara, because I have a bitter life. There's, there's a bitterness here, but the bitterness isn't only bitterness. It's bitterness which is translated into despair. In other words, life, what she really should be saying is neither bitterness nor, nor pleasant, happy life. She should be saying, I'm challenged, I have a new challenge. I now have to move forward and rebuild. She says, The Kaddish Baruch Hu has caused me great suffering. Now, uh, they have in Parshanim, and uh, if anyone wants to see it, look at Rabbi Dan's book on uh, Megillat Ruth, um, which they compare uh, Naomi, 
most of us on this pasuk to Eov. And of course, there are, many, there are many things which resemble between Eov and Nomi. Both of them lose their family. Both of them have a family, have children. They are wiped out. Um, I would add, they also rebuild eventually. And there's a pasuk which Avedan points out in his book over there. Here it says, Kemarsha Kalim Od. Eov says, in Perik Chavzayin, Sefer Eov, So it's a very similar language also. However, what, what matters to me at the moment is not so much to find a linguistic hook to uh, hook them up, rather it's something else. The circumstances are indeed very similar. But look for a moment at Eov and his trajectory. Eov begins with a tragedy very similar to hers. A happy life, everything is good. Then, of course, tragedy strikes, and the Midrash here, in the beginning of, of Migat Rut, the Midrash indeed describes how the tragedy strikes in a similar way, beginning, first of all, with the uh, property, and here, in this case, Bethlehem, and, and they sell, of course, their land, as we know from the Megillah, and then striking at the heart of, his, of her existence, meaning her children. And it comes, um, <clears throat> now, what happens to Eov? So, Eov begins with huge despair. I'm skipping to the Sefer Yo for a moment. This is Perik, uh, the, f- the first Perkim. And Perik Yo Perik Gimel. Vayan Yova Yomar, Yovad Yom Veled, Velad Maharagaver. He begins basically out of deep despair and bitterness to curse his existence. He, I never should have been born. I never should have come into this world, etc. The, the night that I was born should vanish, the day should be taken away, etc., etc. And then he expresses a death wish. Um, Shechavti means I will lie, not to go to sleep, it means I'll go to sleep, the sleep of death. Shechavti bakever, I will go to sleep, I will go to sleep, eternal sleep. And then, and then I'll be happy and quiet. I'll be in peace and quiet once I die. Yeshanti az yanuachli. I'm skipping a few sukim here. Sham reshem chadurog is over there in the grave. People no longer get agitated or upset. Visham yanuchu yechoach. If you've seen this on Shabbat, the source of the pasuk is a little problematic. Uh, but we do that often. We take Pesukim in one way. And, uh, but means death. Uh, now, basically, Eov here, this is Eov in his strongest Hamlet mood. Right? To be or not to be, of course, means to die or not to die. It's not, uh, it's not what usually is made out to be. Uh, and um, Eov is bitterly in despair over here. However, if, if I speak to people, ask them, what's your association of Eov? No, if I stop, uh, you know, Yeshua uh, Bacha here in the in the car and I said, "What? Tell me three, you know, three adjectives that you think about Yov. It won't be it won't be despair. It'll be anger. It'll be bitterness. It'll be uh, debate. It'll be uh, accusing uh, the Kadosh Baruch Hu. Because Yov very quickly snaps out of the mood of despair. Because very combative. He's uh, now we can discuss. Uh, we can give a whole shiur and separate Yov." Whether being combative and and being and accusing God of ABC and wanting to put God in the dark, so to speak, is that a proper religious attitude or not? One thing I can certainly say is it's not despair. Anger and the despair means you simply lethargy, apathetic. Uh, Eov is angry. He's combative, uh, and he doesn't let go. And he, uh, he and luckily we have all these prakim because of his anger and his uh, and his energy. But anger requires energy. And Eo's bitterness is channeled into a proactive uh, relationship. Naomi, though, you get the sense that at this stage, at least, it's the spear. I want to be remembered as the one, as the sufferer. Not uh, the debater, not, um, not, not the person who stood up and argued with God, but I rather want to be remembered as the person simply suffered a lot. 
and the sufferer, uh, and therefore call me Mara. My life is bitter, and my life is uh, is full of pain. That's Naomi's, and she really is full of despair over here. Now, can we understand her? Of course. I said before, she's lost everything. They left Beit Lechem, the, they sold the property, we see later on the Megillah that has to be redeemed uh, later on. They, her family has vanished, she's a solitary existence in an, in an alien culture, so clearly there's a lot of room to feel sorry for herself. But, uh, nevertheless, as I quoted before, the expectation, or at least Chazal's directed to us, is to try to galvanize your energies, despite the tragedy, and move forward. And this is exactly what Naomi cannot begin with. Now, um, and so, let's it, return to Perak Alavir for, uh, for a brief moment. Uh, basically, she says to, to, uh, to Ruth and Orpa, there's no future. Right? I, I won't have children, you won't have anyone to marry, there's no future, we can... We can continue living, we can continue living, we can live our lives. They'll peter out somewhere, I'm a bit older, you're younger, but there's no hope and there's no future. And this is exactly where Ruth and Naomi, excuse me, where Ruth and Orpa part ways. Orpa, for various reasons, uh, departs, and uh, we'll leave her alone at the moment. Uh, and uh, Ruth, and there's a picture. And now here, what is Ruth's main accomplishment? So Chazal tell us that uh, Megillat Ruth, we asked the question, which I should have asked maybe in the beginning, why was the Megillah written? What's, what's the point of the whole story? Um, so Chazal offered two main uh, lines of thought, if one could say, and two of Parshanim down, down the generations. A, to tell the story of Gnut Chasadim. B, to establish the lineage of, of David HaMelech and, uh, and basically to... <coughs> To report David down to from from Peretz all the way down to um, to David to David um, through Boaz Oved and who are Yishai who are David. Um, however, now um, we we'll, we'll get to the Chesed, but the Chesed doesn't begin only from the Chesed. The the point of reversal is not only Chesed. No, Ruth has to have a certain kind of personality to follow Naomi, of course, but it's not enough Chesed. Chesed would have taken her to the point of offering to return, but had Naomi then explained to her that there's no future, that everything is hopeless, so Chesed alone cannot overcome that. What Ruth needs in addition to Chesed is hope. And that's what she has. Now, let's move on to Perak Beit. Naomi has a friend, a relative, however we translate muda, means someone who she has a relationship with. Um, so Naomi has this one ray of light in all of her situation, which is she's very close, or she has a relationship with an important person. Not only an important person, but a man of action. He's an ish gibor chayu. A person who can accomplish a lot. So it's like someone comes alone, solitary from, uh, he comes to Aliyah, but he happens to know the Mankala Visada Kalita or whatever. Uh, so he has one, it, it, all you need is this one contact. As Ramita would say, Kshish Ksharim Lotzich Protectia. So, uh, she has these Ksharim. She has this one contact. Now, what should be Pasuk Bet? Pasuk Bet is very simple. If you say like this, Pasuk Naomi Mudali Naomi has this relationship with a person who's an Ish Gibor Chayil. He's a central figure in the city and the local economy. Ushmo Boaz. Now, it should be a Tomer. It should, of course, be Naomi Lerut. What you see here is Naomi telling Ruth, either Naomi contacting Boaz directly, but Tomer Naomi Leboaz, or Vatakom Naomi Vatelech Leboaz. Naomi should go and approach Boaz, or Naomi should tell Ruth to seek Boaz out and talk to him. And by the way, we'll see this soon. This is what happens in Paragimel, right? In Paragimel, Naomi says to Ruth, 
Oh, Ruth, don't, don't forget this Boaz. Go seek out Boaz. Modateinu. It was the same word from Perik Beta Sukalif. Naomi Modal Isha, her acquaintance or her, uh, or her friend. Uh, so this, in, in Perik Gil Pasukalif, she says, uh, hello, Boaz Modateinu. Here, I have, uh, I have a very close friend who is a pivotal figure. Go and use him. Utilize our connections. But this is a paragimel. In paragbeit, she's totally passive. So instead of a tomer naomi le root or tomer tomer naomi le boaz, and what we get is nothing. All we hear is that Naomi has a friend, and who goes to seek him out on her own initiative, without any introduction. It's root. The tomer root hamoviel naomi. It should be the reverse. Root is the young. Ruth is younger, and of course she's alien, and she's a stranger, and Chazal described that the locals are suspicious of her. So what we really expect, of course, is Naomi advised Ruth. But no, here it's rather, Ruth is the one who initiates everything, because Naomi is a broken soul. Because Naomi can no longer, uh, she's simply, she can't say before, hopeless. She's broken, She's and therefore she's passive, and she's unwilling to initiate anything, even though, as I said before, there is a, there's a ray of hope. There happens to be, uh, she has a, a beginning to which to work up. It's not that there's no, there's nothing. There is, uh, she can see, the path is pretty clear. But nevertheless, she's a broken soul. Now, and therefore, Ruth goes to Boaz, and nobody knows who she is. And Boaz has to, has to be, to be an inquiring, and she comes there as an alien, Nara Moavia. It takes, it takes Boaz a long time to, uh, oh, as Boaz to track her down and figure out who she is. Because so before Naomi is totally out of the picture. She's like totally at loss and paralyzed. So therefore, Ruth does, and the whole story then evolves to Ruth. Uh, okay, now, um, without going, without analyzing the whole story over there, Ruth goes and uh, she sees out Boaz and Boaz discovers who she is. And then we have Peregimel. And here's the, here's the amazing thing. Peregimel reveals a transformation in Naomi. Eventually, Naomi is able to rebuild. Naomi, in Peregbet, Ruth is the active one. Ruth is the one who does everything, the one with the hope. Naomi is one full of despair. However, the moment, the moment something happens, Ruth is able, and this is part of her chesed, She's able to revive something in, uh, in, in Naomi. And all of a sudden, when Ruth comes back, and Naomi realizes that maybe, nevertheless, life can also be his chesed in the world. That life also has its happier moments. And maybe she, she also begins, I would add, she begins to experience a sense of love and empathy from Ruth. So Naomi begins to return to her former self. And Naomi is able all of a sudden, to take over hope. And here we have an interesting parallel um, to we got to stare. Um, however, before I, before I get to that directly, a more general comment. Uh, Aleph, uh, it seems that the Megillot in general are more focused around, around female protagonists than, uh, than male. Ruth, Esther, um, Shia Shirim, in a sense, also... Uh, I mean, the Dodin Raya, the Dodin Rose, but uh, the Raya is the pivotal figure, and it's, 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 it's like this. Sheshim is the drama of the Raya to a large degree. Um, and, um, and now, Echa maybe, which is a, it's a city, but the metaphor there is Echa, But maybe the more important thing is, Chazal have, to the best of my understanding, Chazal have a perspective which often views in, 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 in time or in occasions such as the one we, I've been describing, Chazal see the difference between, the, between man and woman. It's most, it comes most explicitly in the Midrashim HaTzat Mitzrayim. The Midrashim HaTzat Mitzrayim present those who are in despair and those who have hope. And the way Chazal presented, Amram is the one full of despair. He divorces, uh, he divorces his wife he doesn't want to procreate. Now, I can understand Amram. He doesn't want to bring children into a world 
into the world of the ghetto, into the world of persecution. You know, it's, if Egypt is not such a pleasant uh, place to be, and I personally think it's a very, very... Uh, <coughs> it's not just a, a, a not nice place to be. It's a concentration camp. It's a gulag, uh, Egypt. Uh, Amram doesn't want to bear children. So he despairs. So that's it, he despairs. And he, he, he and uh, Yochevet separate. And um, who then comes and symbolizes hope? So it's, it's Miriam in the Midrash, or actually Shifra and Pua. Shifra and Pua are the ones who want to defy Paro, who are the ones who see a point in that a Jewish child should survive. And the way the, the, way the Midrashim describe it, Miriam comes to uh, Amram and says to him, your your policy or, 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 or your conduct is worse than Paro because Paro is only destroying the men. You're destroying everybody. But put differently, Paro is not. It says this: Paro safeg zeratomit kayemet. Saying zeratomit because Paro may succeed, may not succeed, but you'll certainly succeed. But put differently, with Paro there's hope because I can see that his uh, plan will not come to fruition. Baruch Hashem, we survivors. But your plan, if there's despair, if there's despair, I'm so want to survive. And she restores the hope. And of course, we all see this in the story in the Chumash, how she hides in the reeds and uh, emerges to convince Bat Paro at tremendous uh, personal risk. It was... When, when you tell the story in nursery, and that's what most of us remember the story from, we tell the story, and uh, so there's a nice, there's a nice, um, yeah, a very pleasant melody to the, to, to how you tell, you sing it to, to kids in Gan. And the story is told, it's a very romantic story, and Bat Paro is a very, uh, nice and, and noble figure. But of course, uh, as an adult, you have to say to yourself, all this is known ex post facto. But the moment Miriam emerges, she has no idea what Bat Paro is, and with the Bat Paro, Will immediately throw her into prison or have her executed. Uh, the, the the odds of being discovered hiding the reeds where and if you were the secret uh, service of the Egyptian queen and you found a Jew hiding in the a few meters from where she is, uh, you would probably uh, exercise your security precaution and uh, remove her head rather than have your head removed. Uh, and uh, the, the personal risk is tremendous, and but it's done for one reason. Miriam has hope, tremendous amount of hope, and this this, this, go, uh, this goes throughout uh, the Chumash and the Midrashim. Uh, take a final example: the Midrashim describe the woman bringing the food and the, and the hot water to revive the men, and then they procreate. It's all the initiative of the woman. The, the woman of those who basically induced the men uh, to have children. And, and not to have children, just to have uh, even <coughs> just conjugal relations. Uh, and the reason is because the women have more hope and more energy, and the men are broken souls. And uh, this repeats itself in a few other places. Chazal view, that, and that's really what it means, that uh, it's really the idea of hope, as opposed to the spear. And Miriam is the biggest symbol of this, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, interestingly enough, he's, he has a journey from Amram's perspective to to uh, Tamir's perspective, and if you remember the Chumash, it happens twice. He he escapes to Midian once, and then a second time. When he goes to Paro, and Paro, at the end of Parashat Shemot, so he comes to says, he's only gotten worse. I'm unsuccessful. It's a failure. Ever since I came to Paro, it's going a thousand times worse. It's a bad plan. We have to abandon it. And Ramban says over there that Moshe returned to Midian. He gave up. And it's, uh, <clears throat> it's the role, often the Midrashim view, Dafka the role of the Isha to display the hope. If you want, I don't want to get too, uh, too philosophical or too uh, old-fashioned maybe, uh, <clears throat> but it has to do with the fact also that giving birth is always dangerous. Even nowadays, it's certainly time of Chazal, Giving birth is a tremendous risk because medicine being what it was 2,000 years ago, the odds of dying in childbirth are not low. And uh, every time that a, that a woman agrees to give birth or she goes into a... <coughs> she, she conceives and is realized that she'll have to give birth, 
she's basically voting for hope, even a considerable danger to herself because it's a message of hope. At any rate, um, <coughs> this is what happens over here also. Now, Ruth has it from the first moment. Naomi doesn't have it initially, but it's there. It's latent, and therefore it can come out and it can rise to the surface when, uh, when Ruth is able to bring it out. And then a Gimel, and I come back to the comparison to Esther. You got to stare, my father spoke about this often in the yeshiva, you got to stare, in the first half, Esther is, there, is passive, uh, she's young, she lacks confidence, uh, Mordechai tells her everything to do. Everything, Mordechai micromanages her, he manages her, her daily schedule almost. Uh, Mordechai tells her to do this, he tells her to do that, he gives her detailed instructions, and all this holds up to the moment when Esther refuses to follow his instructions, when she doesn't want to go to Achashverosh, and Mordechai says to her, it's now or never. This is the point for when the, for everything is really up to this point that you have to display leadership. You have to reach into your soul and exhibit the powers of leadership that you have. And from that point onwards, Esther is active and Mordechai is passive. Up to that point in Perakim, we got to stare. Mordechai gives the instructions. From that point on, Esther gives the instructions. Mordechai says to her, you know, go to, you know, uh, that Mordechai tells her what to do. And then, later, Esther says, Leich Knos, she begins rallying everyone, she begins issuing orders and directives, and the initiative changes um, drastically from him to her. And the same thing happens here also. In Paragbet, Ruth is pulling all the strings, Ruth is making all the, all the decisions, in Perik Gimel, Naomi is doing it. Perik Gimel, all of a sudden, Naomi takes over the helm, and she has this grand plan, and she has a strategy, and she puts everything together, and Ruth basically is following instructions. And Naomi, what she offers, of course, the audacity is much greater, and uh, Ruth never would have done this on her own, <laughs> but um, when Naomi gets involved, she really takes, she, all of a sudden, she becomes a leader. And that's later on, with Gilad will tell us, in Perak Dalid, that the child is considered her child. Yulad Bain Le Naomi. It's Naomi's child because Naomi has been, if you, if you go back to the beginning of the Megillah, so what, what did we read over there? We, we read over there that I'm not having children. I have no more children. Also we discover it's not true. She has a child. Yulad Bain Le Naomi. Naomi had a child. Now Chazal tell us, because if you raise a child, if you raise someone else's child, it's ki'ilu, that you become the parent. But uh, in this case, it's more than that. It's not only that after he was born, Naomi uh, was uh, was, an, was the a surrogate father or, a, or she was a foster mother to the child. It's rather, Naomi is the one who initiated his whole birth. Had Naomi not told Ruth to go lie by Boaz's feet and to go expose herself to Boaz in the field, never would have marriage and never would have been a child. So it really is. But the point here is, Naomi's perspective beginning the Megillah is incorrect. Because the perspective beginning the Megillah is, no more children, no more hope. There's no only tikva. But the truth is, there are many ways. And there are many solutions. If a person has hope and is willing to initiate, because Baruch will find a way to do it. And uh, so in this case, she has, she has a child at the end, in this case through root. There could have been other ways to do it as well. And um, therefore, you have the Naomi of Perak Aleph and Beit, full of despair, for no, no hope. Um, you have the Naomi of Perak Gimel and Dalit, the one who's active, the one who's... And she undergoes this transformation. And as I said before, you can see how Bet and Perak Gimel give similar situations. In other words, there they are, the two women alone at home at night, planning for tomorrow morning. In the first case, and they know that Boaz is around there and he's the ray of hope. The first time around, Naomi can't do anything. And she, she loses all to root. The second time around, Naomi Ray does everything. Which is how the Rambam describes us. What's tshuva? Tshuva is when you're faced with the same situation that you failed at the first time. And the second time, you do good. So you, you, the circumstances repeat themselves, and the second time you get it right, even though the first time you got it wrong. That's tshuva. And this exactly happens to Naomi over here. She regains her hope, 
and that's a she be and so in a sense it's Megillat Ruth, but that's what Megillat Naomi. Because now it's Megillat, it's not for Ruth, Naomi that we've been stuck forever in, in the despair. But once Ruth brought out whatever potent, brought out Naomi's latent uh, energy and uh, force of personality, eventually it becomes Naomi's Megillah as well, and that's what's really happening towards the end of the Megillah. Yulad the Bain Lin Naomi. Now, uh, an additional point. Um, I, I said before that uh, Megillah is viewed as a Megillah of Chesed. Um, however, there's more, to, there's more to it just than simply Boaz did a good deed and, and Ruth did a good deed, etc. Um, the, towards the end of the Megillah, the Psukim tell us the following... Um, It's a Perik Dalit Pasuk Yudbet. When the child is born uh, and everyone blesses the kid, etc. Now, they give her a bracha that she should be like uh, the family or the, or the home of parrots. The Tamar gave birth to Yehuda. It should be. Now, later on, we also discover, of course, from Pesuk Yitchet, in, in the lineage uh, portion, the Eile Todot Peretz, Peretz, etc., etc. So some Peretz is a figure here who's important. If Eov, if the comparison to Eov, I had a quote of Meidan or other Parshanim, uh, for Peretz, the, the Navi tells us already that we should consider the analogy between the story of, Tam, of Ruth uh, and Boaz to Pere, to Yuda, and Tamar. And of course, the analogies are on the surface uh, here too. In both cases, uh, you have someone who leaves the fold, uh, either Elimelech who go, or Yuda, very Yuda mechav. Yuda sort of wanders away from the rest of his family. And in both cases, there's tragedy. In other words, the children die, and this, two children die, either Machlon uh, v'Kilyon, and uh, the same way Er Onan. and uh, there's a sense that there's no hope, and uh, I'll get back to this in a moment about Yehuda. In other words, there's no plan to try to give birth. Basically, after Er Onan are unsuccessful, or nothing happens with them, so Yudah basically shows the plan. Yudah originally tries to have some kind of yibum, but nothing happens. It's the same way Machlom and Chilion have no children, right? Kilion, meaning it's all uh, it's all gone. So too, uh, Yudah shows the plan, and he has no plan to... Uh, <coughs> and then, of course, you have this episode in which, in which there's a disguise, and an encounter with a disguise, or, or a ruse if you want, uh, between Tamar and Yudan on the one hand, and Ruth and Boaz uh, on the other hand. And you know, Zihuda doesn't expect to uh, discover Tamar, and uh, Boaz doesn't expect to find Ruth, Shochevet, Lemar Gilotav, in the field. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you then have an episode of quasi-yibum, in which case, right, either you know, Yehuda or Boaz become, they, they, they fulfill the role of the Miyabem, and the family is then uh, reestablished, and David Melech then emerges from both. Um, now, what's, what's the crucial point over here? The crucial point is as following. And for this, so we have to analyze a bit Yudah and Tamar. The root of the problem between Yudah and Tamar is not... What's, what's the root of the problem between Yudah and Tamar? Why is, uh, is Yudah... So, why did the scheme accuse him? Why is he so guilty? Uh, they say, so there can't be many. What's the, what's the real issue over there? The real issue over there is, and the reverse, of course, by Ruth and Boaz. The issue there is not, the issue is as follows. Of course, how do you treat the other? How do you treat somebody else? And, uh, the problem with Yehuda and his whole family, really, originally they treat Tamar, as an object, the weird object may be a bit misleading here, but they treat someone to be utilized and to be manipulated for their purposes. They are at the center. It's egocentric. They are at the center, and they use her for their purposes. The question is, what's good for us? 
not after kamocha. In other words, you should think what the other person wants as well. But rather, they put uh, themselves. In. Of course, it's most uh, blatant by Erev Onan, and to the way Chazal describe it, you know, as Chazal describe Erev Onan that they want all the sexual pleasure without any of the commitment which accompanies it. And it was the Torah essentially wants a person to live not not like Lemech. If you, if you remember by Lemech, it says in, in the Midrash, which, which Rashi quotes, the Lemech has two wives. In other words, one, he has an aesthetic one. one he, wants, he wants a beautiful wife. Another one he wants to procreate. Words, he wants one to give birth. And one that should be his, uh, you know, his, 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 his model. And, uh, and, you know, he's divorcing the commitment and the, and the, the commitment to raise a child. You know, what gives the legitimacy to, um, to sexual life is the commitment which accompanies it. Meaning that the, fed, the husband and wife not only love each other, but they're also willing together to commit themselves to another life outside of them. So it's not only my personal desire and my personal relationship, but rather it's my rela- it's the re- it's our do- it's our joint relationship which is also leveraged towards a commitment to others. And this is exactly what everyone non refuse uh, in Chazal's language all they, they want they basically want all the sexual pleasure from Tamar, Dashim Bifnim Zareba Chutz in other words, they want basically to have this sexual encounter without, without them having, uh, the, providing the semen to, uh, to create a child. And, uh, which is essentially, I want the pleasure from you, I'll use you. Tamar is dying to have a child. Tamar sees a child as a future. Tamar desperately wants to be a mother. But that doesn't interest them because they want, they don't want the commitments. Now, by Yudah, it's, it's the same thing, man, in a slightly different form. Yudah says, wait 13 years because my child is too young. In other words, he doesn't ask himself, well, what does Tamar want to do in the meantime? Is Tamar willing to wait 13 years till Shelah will grow? And who knows if Shelah will then want to marry her or not? But Yudah doesn't say, well, what do you want to do now that, you know, and now that basically two children have died? And Sheila is, 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 uh, is too young. Well, what is your plans? What are your hopes? And Yudah basically says to her, as the strong and the powerful figure, he says to her, you're going to do this because it's good for us. And he doesn't take into account her needs. Now, it comes out uh, in a, a symbolically in the whole episode of uh, when he meets Tamar. And Tamar dresses up as uh, a prostitute in order for... And her point is very simple, that prostitution is exactly what I described before in, in the ultimate form. And meaning it's commercial. There's no love, there's no commitment, there's no commitment between husband and wife, there's no commitment to a child, of course. It's simply, it's pleasure commercialized. No relationship, no commitment. When you talk about husband and wife, so if there's no child, for instance, that if, if they're not at this childbearing age, nevertheless, there's a mutual commitment to each other. By, um, by, by the prostitution, it's simply pleasure-seeking and commercialized. And um, now, um, with Tamar saying, I tell you, Dad, this is what you've been doing with me throughout. It's not simply that one encounter uh, when she stands on the roadside. She's trying to hint to him, and, and more than hint, this is what's happened throughout. The whole relationship like this has been, always been, has been always like this. And that he then proves her point because he, he doesn't recognize her. And then he says to, if you remember the story there, and I'll, because of time, I'll just do it briefly. If you remember the story over there, so he leaves with her, he leaves with her his, his personal belongings, and he tells her he'll send her, he'll send her payment, uh, later on, and then he tells his, uh, his, his helper, his assistant, take the payment, they go pay her. In other words, and, uh, she inquires, and where, where is the Ayeha Kedeshah Yiban? I'm where, where's the prostitute? She's disappeared. They, no, there never was. There never was. What's happened? So he says this to his companion, Tikachla Pemielavaz. Take it so it shouldn't, you know, our reputation shouldn't be ruined. Now, what's happened is very simple. Yudas is a commercial transaction. He doesn't want his credit rating. He doesn't want his reputation to be harmed. 
He doesn't say, you know, he says nothing about her. He's saying it's a trend. I, I, you left a personal belonging just to ensure payment. So he's sending a check to replace the personal belongings. And when she's not around, so uh, he says, okay, so let's set it aside in an escrow uh, account. So someone, so we know, our credit rating shouldn't be hurt. Uh, what is she saying? She wanted the personal belongings. Why? She wanted to basically get across a message. It has to be a relationship. You have to look at me as an I vow. You have to accept me as a person. So then this is where's the Kedeshah? Like, of course it was the Kedeshah. Because Tamar is not a Kedeshah. Tamar is a person seeking a relationship, an I vow relationship with Yehuda. And, and now that's what happens at the moment when he, at, 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 at the conclusion, at the climax of the story. She produces the Chotemet and the Ptilim. What's he really saying to him? What she's really saying to him is Haker not recognize, not the object, recognize the person because it's a personal object. Recognize me as a human being, not as an object to be manipulated. Recognize me not as having a profession like a prostitute. Recognize me as a person. And of course, Yudah's greatness, and uh, I have time to dwell on this, is that he does tshuva. He recognizes the error of the whole, he recognizes his error, and he basically says, I, no, I, I, mis, I mistreated her, I, mis, I misunderstood the whole thing. He basically, uh, he accepts responsibility for everything, which is sort of tshuva. But at the moment, the, leading up to that point, basically, what is Tamar establishing? That personal relations are what matter. That the real issue here is the relationship. It's not, uh, it's, it, it's being recognized as a human being. And now this is exactly the story of Ruth and, uh, and Boaz as well, only in the positive sense. When Ruth begins to follow the Omi, it sounds like a plain act of chesed. Meaning there's an old lady and she has trouble traveling and she'll be alone. So Naomi goes, so Ruth follows her. At some point Naomi impresses upon her that the personal price to Ruth is too great. Now, even though Naomi will benefit from having a companion and for traveling with someone who be uh, who also be in Beit Lechem to help her uh, find Sakan uh, Parnasa, but nevertheless, Naomi says to her, "In this case, your loss outweighs my benefit." Now, if Na- if Na- if Ruth was only doing quote unquote regular Chasadim, there's a lot of truth. That. Let me just add a point: Gut Chasadim. Of course, is one of the pillars of uh, of life. As Judaism believes, Torah, Vodag, Mut Chasadim. But nevertheless, Chesed has within it one built-in problem. Problem is being that you're, it's, it's a patronizing uh, act in a sense, because I come from a position of power. You're weak. You're in need, and I provide. So, a provider being provided for a relationship is not an equal relationship. That I'm not giving to you as a friend as an equal. I'm in a position of strength and power, and you're in Nebuch, and I'm trying to help you, but there's, there's, a, there's a symmetry here which is problematic in terms of the human relationships. So that's how it begins. Ruth is young and energetic, and Naomi is old and, and full of despair. So the original thing, so Naomi says, it's not worth your effort, and, my, and your, your loss outweighs my gain. What is um, Ruth's response? I'm not coming as chesed in that sense, in the patronizing sense. I'm coming because I recognize a person. I've adopted you as a friend, as a companion. It's become a relationship. This is not simply helping an old lady. This rather is, I've decided to establish a relationship with you because you're my mother-in-law, because we've been together, we've gone through all this together. My destiny is your destiny and vice versa. I'll be buried with you. We'll go together. Basically, Ruth says, everything that Tamar is seeking for, Ruth is offering to, uh, at this stage, to Naomi. Then she views the interaction between people as the interaction between people, between personas, between souls. It's a meeting of souls. And that's what she is out to provide. And therefore, she, um, she follows Naomi. And this, of course, is what happens... Later on, and this is what Boaz tells her also. He tavd chasdei hachromin Your later chesed is greater, which I take to mean the following. The initial chesed, as I said before, chesed stage A is simply to do a favor to someone in need. To help a weaker party uh, get, get what they need. And chesed stage B, or what Boaz calls chasdei is this meeting of souls. 
is the commitment of an eye to a vow and an eye to an owl, to an eye. And, uh, that's what boss calls chazdecha acharon. That you're not going after, you're not following all kinds of youngsters. You remain committed because you have a commitment to Naomi. And you will not uh, violate the commitment because the commitment is between two people who are attached to each other. And this is, the, in a sense, the real message of Chesed and Megillah. It's not simply just Chesed that I'll help someone who's a who. No, it's not that Boaz is helping her because she's hungry and Ruth is helping Naomi because she's tired. It's rather that Boaz, that Ruth and Naomi on the one hand and then Boaz and Ruth combine to become soulmates. And that, that's why she can approach him in the field later on. Had it been simply that Boaz being nice to... Now, if, if you read the story there and... I'll say this telegraphically, Boaz's um, staff and work of the Chesed, the first kind. You know, there's this poor girl who's wandering around here. She's been collecting, uh, she's been gathering uh, grain all morning long. It's fine with them. They see clearly she's, t- she's clearly hungry. She's clearly destitute. So they're glad to, uh, they want to allow her to hang around there and pick up whatever she can find. But they don't commit themselves to her. Boaz says to them, give her lunch. Now, it's, us- it's a crucial thing. The point of this lunch is not because she's hungry and will give her a good, a good lunch, which is also something, of course, but it's actually much deeper. What Boaz is saying to them is, she is not simply a stranger who all we're doing is having mercy and rahmanas upon. She become, she become part of us. We have a relationship with her. She'll eat with us because when you break bread together, you now enter into a relationship. And Boaz adopts her and the relationship with her. And that's why the Pesukim makes so much. We ate lunch that, that, that afternoon. And that's the same story of the six uh, six pieces of barley that he gives her. It says, <coughs> So Rashi says, in the name of the Midrash, he gave her six bushels because that's too much for her to schlep. Uh, so what did he give? He gave her apparently six pieces of her barley. It's meaningless per se. But the point is he gave her a token. Token of friendship and token of commitment. And Chazal, of course, made this out. Rashi says already, he told her six, uh, six various qualities of Mashiach he gave her. He gave her, in other words, a relationship. Uh, it's simply a symbolic token of the relationship they wants to enter into her. And uh, because now he's giving her a gift. He's no longer allowing her to pick up the... In the Matanot Aniyim, what the Torah said you give to poor, to poor people because the Torah gave it to them. He's giving her a gift. And basically, Boaz and Ruth enter into this relationship in which they're committed. So Boaz doesn't want to buy only the field. He wants to marry her. Unlike the Plony Almoni, who indeed wants only to maximize... He wants to prostitute the relationship. He just wants to gain the field without the commitment. And he, of course, is the foil to Boaz... By Boaz, it's not simply he's going to do a favor to a poor person, to a relative. He wants to enter into this relationship. And um, this, in a sense, is the greatness of the chesed of root. And um, additionally, that's why the Megillah says at the end, Kibet Peret, because this was Tamar's life's goal, to establish that relationships are, are what really matter. And the only way for relationships to... Um, to be established is, the, is through this mindset. And Ruth has indeed accomplished this. And because she's accomplished this, so that's why the bracha she gets, Kiveit Tamar, it's Kiveit Tamar Yehuda. Now, in conclusion, just two, uh, two comments to, to round this out, or three, maybe three telegraphs instead of. First of all, I spoke about, I spoke about Yehush and, and despair and hope. I forgot to quote. This is just, I just forgot. The Gemamba Abatris has, asks, what were the names? Machlon v'kilyon or Yoash v'saraf? Because in, in root it's called Machlon v'kilyon, in Divrei I mean they're called Yoash v'saraf. So the Gemara has a, a Machlokit, of course, uh, but uh, the main, the majority opinion there is that the real name is Machlon v'kilyon. Yoash v'saraf shenit ya'ashu. In other words, they're called Yoash v'saraf, it's descriptive. It's almost an adjective because they're the ones who are full of despair. So this idea I mentioned in the beginning is really in Chazal. Uh, the second point, which is more substantive, is there's another strand, thought of Megillah, is that of monarchy and kingdom. Everything I described here is relevant to that. A monarch deals always with despair. You have, so, you know, he often has their ups and downs. Politics is never only an up. Uh, there are ups and there are downs. 
and often a country or uh, or people have the down moments. One of the essential qualities and characteristics of a monarch has to be the ability to overcome uh, difficult circ- adverse circumstances. If you can't deal with adversity, so there'll be help- hopelessness and helplessness. If he, on the other hand, he has hope and his leadership, so he can overcome adversity. And um, basically, it's a crucial quality for monarchs. So what's happening is, you see in a micro-story, basically the qualities that David HaMelech will need. Think of David HaMelech's career. If David HaMelech cannot overcome adversity when he's, when he's escaping Yuda, when Shaul is chasing him, and many, when, when the story of Bathsheba, if David could not overcome and would, would be a helpless figure, he would have been, he never could have been a king. He has to be a king only because he knows to overcome adversity. So the, these qualities, even though they're displayed in a very local story, are essentially a recipe for kingdom. And the same is for the other thing as well. The easiest, the most dangerous way to abuse power is by a king, right? Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the uh, Dafka king, more than anybody else, can abuse his power. The story of Yehuda is a warning sign to a king even more so. Because a king can do a meal, marlo, matasend. Of course, the Tanakh exhibits this to the story of Achav and Navot. And uh, the danger is always lurking, it's always over there. So the quality, on the other hand, the reverse, to treat your subjects as an I thou, to feel like a father to every subject of the kingdom, is crucial. The Rambam emphasized, whoever wants to look up, and the, the Rambam emphasizes this because he's aware of all these problems. And the way to overcome this, the way to, you have to have roots and bosses sensitivity in order to be a leader as well. So this is not only, um, this is not only is to their personal uh, greatness, but it's also a recipe for David to become a king later on, to be able to relate to people as an Ayn and Thou as well. So that's about.